Welcome to Parallel Worlds, audio issue 4, December 2019. Word for word, the articles that appear in this month's Parallel Worlds magazine. Editorial The winter break has always seemed to this writer to be made for escapism. The days are short, it's cold and wet outside, and just possibly, you've spent more time with your family than you really wanted to. No matter, treat yourself to a new book, film or video game, make yourself a nest of blankets and get lost in a whole different world for a few hours. At Parallel Worlds, we hope to be your guide to some of the wonderful and strange new universes out there. In this edition, we take a look inside FantasyCon 2019 and walk you through creating your very own murder mystery for tabletop roleplaying in our new adventure module feature. Star Wars fans getting warmed up for the rise of Skywalker should check out our guide to the extended universe of Star Wars Rebels, and we have a roundup of 2019's best horror films for those looking for spooky viewing in the long dark nights. In our regular attractions, we're bringing you more fantastic short fiction, and meeting a new character in Miniature of the Month. We recommend more gems than self-published fiction, and talk to XCOM creator Julian Gollop, whose latest game, Phoenix Point, is due out this month. Of course, one of the very best parts of making a magazine, especially a new one like this, is getting to hear from and respond to our readers. Without you, there really wouldn't be a point to any of this. How are you whiling away the winter? What's been your escapist highlight of 2019? What would you love to see us cover next year? Stay in touch on Twitter or email us at editor at parallelworlds.uk. See you in the new year! Interview, Julian Gollop. Julian is voiced by Peter Wotherspoon. British game designer Julian Gollop has been working in the computer game industry since the 1980s. Some of the games he's made are regarded as being the best turn-based strategy games ever created. If you grew up in the 80s or the 90s, it's likely you'll have played or heard of Chaos, Rebel Star, Laser Squad, Lords of Chaos, or UFO, Enemy Unknown, which first introduced us to the XCOM franchise. Now, Julian is back with a new game being released this month, and he's here to tell us all about Phoenix Point. Hi Julian, thanks for dropping in to talk to Parallel Worlds. We're really excited to chat with you. I know you've got Phoenix Point coming out this month, and lots of our readers are already hyped. But for those that don't know, can you tell us a little bit about it? Phoenix Point is a strategy game in the tradition of XCOM, with a rich strategic layer, turn-based battles, squad development and research. There's a strong Lovecraftian element in the nature of the mutant alien threat, but drawing on modern scientific concerns about genetic modification, artificial intelligence and global warming. The cause of the alien threat is something called the Pandora virus, a virus so complex that it can cause multiple mutations in any living organism. You were the original creator of the XCOM games, which have been reimagined by Firaxis in the last few years. Is Phoenix Point a return to that genre of science fiction horror? If so, what are the prevailing themes of that genre that appeal to you as a designer? Phoenix Point is very much a return to science fiction horror set on Earth in the near future. The original XCOM played on themes current in UFO lore, such as alien abductions, cattle mutilations, men in black and government conspiracies. Interestingly, just a month or so before we finished the game, one of the QA guys excitedly burst into our room talking about some US TV show which had all the stuff from our game. 
The show was the X-Files, and indeed XCOM and the X-Files both reflected the zeitgeist. Phoenix Point has a very different setting, but the idea that the alien threat is transforming and merging with humanity rather than just taking over with ray guns is appealing to me. What are the aspects of Phoenix Point that stand out for you? The alien mutation system is very cool where basic creature archetypes evolve different appendages and body forms as the Pandora virus mutates them. This means that the player is facing a constantly changing threat. The three human factions are very interesting, and they provide three different possible endings for the player. New Jericho represents a more conventional military approach, with a military strongman leader and an obsession about cleansing humanity from mutation. The Disciples of Anu are a religious cult, led by a mutated woman known as the Exalted, who's find a way to control the Pandora virus mutation for her own purposes. Finally, Synedrion are an ecological anarchist group with advanced technology but continuous internal debates about how to deal with the alien threat in terms of the combat system. I really like our free aim mode that immerses the player in the targeting of every shot and how the tactics of disabling certain alien body parts are a key part of the game. There's been extensive backer build feedback which has been hugely positive. Have there been any design changes you've incorporated from that process? Not specifically, no. Although it has helped us to focus on certain areas over others, we can't possibly incorporate all the feedback we get, but it can help as a guide. In some cases, there are contradictions, for example, between players of the original XCOM games who want a more detailed simulation approach and players of the Firaxis XCOMs who appreciate the accessible UI and great presentation. It's not possible to satisfy both groups completely, but we feel that we have a good balance of old and new. You've been cited as an inspiration for many game designers and other creative artists and writers working in a variety of different fields. What inspired you to start, and what inspires you now? My first gaming passion was for board games and role-playing games. I loved historical games as much as the fantasy games. In fact, I would say that Avalon Hill's Squad Leader and SPI Sniper games were directly inspirational for many of my games, including XCOM. Dungeons & Dragons was also a favourite during 1979 to 1981. Nowadays I'm really inspired by indie games such as Darkest Dungeons, Slay the Spire and Into the Breach. But I still play board games. What was it like starting out as a game designer and programmer? How have things changed? When I first started programming on my 48k ZX Spectrum, it was a great feeling, a sense of creative power with a new and exciting medium. In those days, I did almost everything on my own, including graphics and sound. Mostly, I learned by experimentation and iteration. The board game influence was very much there, though. Things have changed dramatically, of course, with a lot more specialisation within the game development field. There are a lot more ways to finance games and collect metrics on how players are interacting with them. So many games now have online and social components which interact seamlessly with single-player experiences. It's a much bigger and much more complex and diverse industry. Are you still hands-on in the programming and creative process? I haven't actually done any programming since Chaos Reborn a few years ago now. I'm still very much hands-on with the whole game design process, even though we have a team of very good game designers here at Snapshot Games. We know you're a great player of games too. Does that help when you're designing a new game? Yes. Yes, it does. I consciously play games in different genres, both AAA and indie titles, to get a good sense of trends in game design and player audiences. 
Often, it helps to incorporate ideas from drastically different games and genres in the design process, but without trying to slavishly follow a fashion or a trend. If you had to play only one game for the rest of your life, what would it be? That sounds like a fate worse than death. If I had to pick, I'd go back to D&D. What are you reading at the moment? Antisocial. Online extremists, techno-utopians, and the hijacking of the American conversation. By Andrew Morantz. Desert Island Games. You're trapped on a desert island. Which three games would you have with you, assuming you have people to play them with? Arkham Horror the card game, Keyforge, that's another card game, and Slay the Spire. We're really keen to try Phoenix Point. What's your top tactical tip for first-time players? Pick a faction you like, and build an alliance as soon as possible, while stealing as much tech and resources from the other factions as you can. Also, don't let your soldiers get killed too much. Load up on the medkits, and retreat when you need to. Phoenix Point by Snapshot Games is available from the Epic Games Store for $31.99. Board Game Review Zombie Kids Evolution Legacy games have been one of the hottest developments in board gaming in the last few years. These are games which change as you play, adding or discarding components or rules to change the way the game plays over consecutive sessions. Zombie Kids takes this concept and tailors it for a family age range, aimed at ages 6 and up. The core of Zombie Kids is classic tower defence. It's a cooperative game in which each player controls a school kid, armed for defence with water pistols, toy laser swords and the like. Meanwhile, the teachers, who have now turned undead, invade the school. The players must work together to seal the four school gates by getting to each yard and applying a padlock token. Meanwhile, zombies spawn at the beginning of each player's turn, according to a die roll, which indicates in which coloured room the next zombie appears. On their turn, players can enter a room and clear it of zombies, as long as there are only one or two. Once a room contains three zombies, it cannot be entered, and the players will lose if the supply of zombie tokens ever runs out. This is where the legacy element comes into its own, as your first few plays of Zombie Kids feel very basic. The simple balance of keeping zombie numbers down while trying to coordinate at a gate in pairs is interesting, but it definitely feels bare. However, with each game, you are rewarded with stickers to apply to a progress chart on the back of a manual. At certain numbered milestones, you'll open one of a series of sealed envelopes supplied in the box. Each envelope contains new components, new rules and even new achievements which relate to the new elements. Having played the game a fair bit, I can give you an insight into the contents of the envelopes. Spoiler free, of course, because discovering the new elements is a huge part of the fun. Each of the playable characters will gain a unique power to help manage the horde, while at the same time the threat increases. The zombies also get power-ups from time to time, moving beyond their initial static spawning. It's an incredibly clever design. My six-year-old loves the envelopes and sometimes wants to continue playing the game until we reach the next milestone and, with it, the next envelope. Unsurprisingly, as the contents are all thoroughly exciting. 
Once you've opened a few envelopes, it's a much more advanced game. My daughter and I have so far made it to envelope 6, and it's fair to say that the number of options now available each turn have made the game a significant puzzle for her. She's learning to strategize and spot potential areas of risk much more than any of the other games in our collection. There are times when there are almost too many options for her at this point, but one of the nice things about Zombie Kids is that it is possible to play without some of the upgraded powers or rules if it feels overwhelming. Importantly, the basic start with evolving rules becomes its own tutorial, allowing players to learn each aspect of the game thoroughly before adding a new one. It also serves as an interesting design exemplar of how modifying a single small rule can have great repercussions on the flow of the game. The complexity only ever comes from added nuances, never overwhelming with rules or too many components. It's also great to have a real game which can be played with adults and kids alike. Okay, it isn't so demanding that adults might seek it out for a challenge without children involved, but it's great to have a game which feels like we're all playing at a similar level, rather than the grown-ups humouring the basic challenge of a kid's educational game. Zombie Kids successfully sidesteps the problem which hobbles most legacy games. In that, it can be played with any number of players at any time. The usual obstacle to enjoying legacy games is getting the same people together on a regular basis to complete the campaign. Zombie Kids suffers no such requirements as each game is standalone and the character progress is related to the available roles in the box, not tied to a player. Production-wise, it's beautifully designed. The art is reminiscent of the very modern kids' TV animation style and every component feels high quality. The board is double-sided, with a day design for three to four players and a night side, which has a slightly rebalanced layout for two players. Overall, it's hard to do anything other than give Zombie Kids the highest possible recommendation if you have younger gamers in your house. It's attractive, accessible, thematic, an evolving challenge, and as a bonus, it's likely to cost you well under £20. I can't wait to open the rest of the envelopes with my daughter and see what new challenges await. Zombie Kids Evolution is published by Scorpion Mask. Generic Adventure Module We Found a Body. We love role-playing games. In this issue, we're starting a new infrequent feature article series, the Generic Adventure Module. These articles will cover a particular plot you can introduce into your game to run alongside your main campaign, or kickstart a new series of adventures. The structures of these plots may also be useful to aspiring writers looking to put together a short story or novel. Where possible, we will try to keep the setting of the adventure as portable as possible. Our first adventure module for you is... We found a body. Involving a player group in a murder mystery is a great way of helping them bond, but also a nice way of expanding the world context they are in. After all, a murder doesn't have to connect to any of the existing issues or plots they are caught up in. It might have been perpetrated by someone entirely unconnected to them, for reasons they are totally unaware of. By dropping a body into the situation, you start people asking questions and trying to solve a puzzle. First of all, we have to introduce the body. 
This should happen in a location the players are familiar with. Perhaps they've just returned from adventuring in a dungeon and decided to sleep in a local tavern for the night, and when they wake up in the morning, there's a body in the common room. Or they're on a spaceship and making a cargo run. During their shift, one of the player's characters goes to check the hold and finds a body. This could also work for a sea adventure or some other trade setting. A body in the merchant's wagon, perhaps. Wherever this happens, make the description of the scene imaginative but general. Emphasis should be on the shock, not the detail. Secondly, forensics. The first thing the players are going to do is try to ask questions and diagnose the scene. A lot of this can be done with some relevant skill checks in your game system. This is the point where you can start to offer some specific details. If you've prepared a few set paragraphs for each skill they are using to find out what happened, you can control the narrative and maintain a level of information privilege. Occasionally, you may have a scene-breaking ability available, so it's important to plan or improvise carefully. A character who can use some kind of clairvoyant spell or question the dead is going to learn more about the situation because they will be able to get an account of what may have actually happened. If you want the mystery to continue, you'll need to plan for this kind of intervention. Three, the suspects. This is an opportunity for you to introduce characters to your players. Who's been in the location? Who discovered the body? The person who raised the alarm after discovering the situation is always going to be a suspect to start with. But most plots like this in films and books rule them out pretty quickly. You could make use of that for a twist, which we'll talk about later. There are a variety of ways in which you could use non-player characters in the aftermath of Discovery. Spreading suspicion around is a good idea, particularly if one of the players can't account for their whereabouts or doesn't have someone to vouch for them. Setting up a non-player character as a rival protagonist or investigator before the authorities arrive is a way to throw people off the scent and set up a series of conflicts between perpetrator, non-player character amateur detective, player characters, and the authorities, who are soon to arrive. Whatever you decide to do, creating a few non-player characters with different related backgrounds and agendas that aren't immediately apparent will give the players something to explore if they decide to try and solve the case. This also means you will have some ready non-player characters for use in a longer campaign later. 4. The Procedure One of the things that introducing a plot like this does is highlight the correct procedure for dealing with the situation within this specific context. There's a little bit of world-building going on here, and it can help make the players believe they are part of a bigger environment. In the tavern, this might come down to the owner notifying the local militia, or not, which may in itself cast suspicion upon them. In the spaceship, it may be a case of communicating to a local space station or to a police vessel that can come and offer assistance. If the authorities are notified, there is likely to be a delay before anyone arrives in response. This gives the player's characters plenty of time to start doing their own detective work. The J.B. Priestley play, An Inspector Calls, makes use of the authorities in a very careful way, having the titular inspector question each suspect and gradually reveal their connection to the victim in a kind of public confessional. Priestley's play has a fabulous twist to it too, which you could easily use if you wanted to flip the situation on its head. Similarly, the board game Cluedo and the film based on it, Clue, are great examples of how to develop a murder mystery structure and can really help with your research and planning out characters, murder weapons, locations, and so on. You might want to watch television shows like Murder, She Wrote or Columbo too. Some of these can look a bit dated, but the plotting is first class. Part of the procedure will be how the crime is dealt with and how evidence is recorded and found. A little bit of research might be required here to get your details right. 
For example, time of death is often announced with far too much precision on detective-based television shows. In addition, your setting is going to contribute to what technology the authorities have available and are confident in using. In the medieval fantasy Wizamere series, wizards can view the memories of the victim through magic, but anything they find out is inadmissible as evidence because the laws of the land do not recognize wizards as citizens. So a militia captain can ask a wizard to cast the spell and report what they found out, but must then find other evidence to use in front of the arbitrator or judge. 5. The Perpetrator So, who did it? As a games master, you need to know. A crime has been committed, and this is an opportunity to introduce a villain to your campaign. This could be a minor role solely for the purpose of the murder plot, or an opportunity to introduce a bigger plot and wider conspiracy. Maybe the killer was acting under the orders of a sinister organization. If someone is guilty, you probably need to make some notes about them when you are devising the other non-player characters. Alternatively, maybe no one did it. There are plenty of strange situations throughout history that have looked like crimes, but turn out to be suicides or horrible accidents of fate. Perhaps the victims faked their own death and is actually hiding out, watching what everyone is doing. Whatever you decide, it is a good idea to have the events planned out first, so you can stay one step ahead of your players as they investigate. As the agendas of different non-player characters are revealed, or different people, including the player characters, are accused of the crime, there are bound to be a series of conflicts. The great thing about murder mysteries is that they invite people to stitch together different events and create a narrative. Once the players start speculating like this, let them run with it, dropping in hints and tiny bits of information as they go. If they've invented a whole new conspiracy that you never planned for, let that run! Gradually, as they get more information, they'll find the truth, or not, and then be surprised when the real murderer is revealed. This part of the story is the best bit. If you can get the players trying to solve the mystery through their characters, a lot of your work will be done for you by their proactive detective work. You can feed them a little more information when you need to. The backstories and motivations of different characters should interplay with the murder premise. More than one character should have a motive for killing the victim, as this will provide opportunities for red herrings, the kind of subplot agenda that can encourage the players to suspect the wrong person and make up a narrative all of their own. And what if there's another murder? Perhaps the situation is even more desperate than people thought. After a few hours or another night's sleep, another body turns up. This might be the chief suspect, which will throw the investigators off the trail. One thing that can be concluded, though, is that these are not accidental deaths. Multiple murders usually work best if the perpetrator has a revenge agenda, the victims have something to link them together, and the location is particularly isolated. Lastly, the reveal. Eventually, someone is going to figure out what happened. The traditional Agatha Christie-style reveal happens in front of everyone involved. This serves three purposes. One, it ensures that all the characters learn what happened at the same time. Two, it can mean the perpetrator is prevented from trying to escape or commit more violent acts in front of witnesses. Three, it makes for a good ending in a television episode. In a role-playing game, things may not work out the same way. In a lot of games, you may want to turn the final scene into some kind of altercation between characters and the revealed murderer. This gives the story some tension and raises the stakes. The players might capture the criminal, or they might not. Perhaps the authorities or the other non-player characters are racing to get there, so it's a three-way confrontation. Hopefully, this selection of ideas has got your imagination working. 
On the Parallel World website, you'll find a sample murder mystery adventure module written with this structure in mind. Feel free to download it and adapt it to the system and setting that you're playing with. Miniature of the Month Grack, Warlord of the Clan This place is ours! I was born in the dark, in a place of stone and dank, dripping water. I was strong, stronger than the weak who died to feed us. The first food I tasted was the flesh of my dead brothers and sisters. After a while, the best of us emerged from that place. We found others and waged war against anything that stood in our way. We live in the tunnels, in the old places where the dwarves once lived. They came here looking for gold, but burrowed too far into the mud and rock, waking up the evils of the deep. The old tellers say we were part of that waking, that we are kin to the shadows, the demons and the dark dwellers who live far below us all. But we cannot be sure. There are no writings, nothing beyond what the stories we tell each other, whispering between sleep and war. I became the strongest, and now I lead. Razak stands at my left shoulder with his axe, his brother Varkran with his club at my right. After bloodying them both, they swore themselves to me, above and beyond the loyalties of clan. When the old warlord Thrilla died at the hands of stinking elves from the surface, all the warriors fought, and I won. Any may yet challenge me, but they will have to reckon with the three of us now. Now, we hunt in the tunnels, and we will feast. Back in 1995, I went to Gen Con, a convention held in Rye, in Sussex. I was a college student on a great adventure with a couple of friends. I arrived with an empty rucksack and came away with boxes and boxes of lead miniatures for my role-playing game campaign. Grack is part of a set of Grenadier miniatures and was the leader orc in a box I bought. He was a regular unpainted feature in my role-playing game campaign as I battle-boarded skirmishes between orc gangs and intrepid player character adventurers. This summer, after 24 years, I finally find the right shade of green, a mixed paint for him and the rest of his comrades. A pleasant few weeks of painting ensued until I had 31 members of Grack's orc clan all painted up and placed in the display cabinet. Grack himself was a live role-playing character I played at the Lorien Trust event. He was a bar orc, supplying liquor to the drow as they hunted enemies in the Underdark. When writing his little story above, I struggled a bit with the accent. The way orcish dialogue is written in several games, including Warhammer, is quite phonetic, with lots of slags and other abbreviations. There's a little of that in Tolkien, along with different Orcish languages, which are twisted versions of Elvish. I decided to go with something a little less brash. 
Since I finished painting Warlord Grack and his clan, I've been hunting on eBay for a few extra orcs to join them. I'm always on the lookout for new poses from the Grenadier castings of the 1990s. They have such great all-action stances. The pictures taken here are with my new camera lens. The depth of field is tiny, making the scenes these miniatures are posed in look quite cinematic. At times, even the weapons look a little out of focus when the faces are sharp, giving a sense of motion blur, as if they really are moving. FantasyCon 2019 the great and the good of British fantasy converge once a year at this autumnal gathering of writers, publishers, artists and agents. This year, for the first time, and not before time, the event organisers ventured north of the border to Clydebank near Glasgow. The first fantasy con was in 1975. The convention has always been an industry meeting, with writers catching up to discuss new projects and share their latest works. The programme content is always rich, varied and interesting, with a selection of panels catering to a wide array of needs. Attendees of FantasyCon enjoy a visit to different cities around the British Isles, with venues in the last few years including Nottingham, Scarborough, Peterborough and Chester. This year, the trip up north and some logistical issues in the lead-up to the event clearly affected the attendance numbers, which were a little lower than the usual 500 or so. The location, the Golden Jubilee Conference Centre, is attached to a hospital and a huge facility. The convention was only a part of this, as the hotel fulfilled its other function of providing a space for recovering patients. Programming was the usual range of panels, workshops and interviews. Guests of honour, Paul Tremblay and Dr Una McCormack, are well known to those familiar with the scene. The intended third guest, Jen Williams, was unfortunately forced to cancel only weeks before the event. The advertising of content and panellists was less well communicated than usual. FantasyCon usually has a programme guide, but this year it did not. Panellists, who volunteer their time months in advance, only learned of their assignments a couple of weeks before the event, and there were moments when individuals did not know who was to be moderating the discussions. Nevertheless, most proceeded without incident, even if the audiences were less able to track their favourite speakers in the timetable. The Sunday of the convention continues with the annual general meeting of the British Fantasy Society and the British Fantasy Awards. The full list of award winners is Best Newcomer, the Sydney J. Bounds Award, Tasha Suri for Empire of Sand, published by Orbit. Best Magazine Periodical, Uncanny Magazine. Best Nonfiction, Noise and Sparks by Ruth E.J. Booth, printed in Shoreline of Infinity. Best Comic Slash Graphic Novel, Widdishins, Volume 7, by Kate Ashwin. Best Audio, Breaking the Glass Slipper Podcast, by Lucy Hounsom, Charlotte Bond, and Megan Lee. Best Artist, Vince Haig. Best Independent Press, Unsung Stories. Best Anthology, Year's Best Weird Fiction, Volume 5, edited by Robert Shearman and Michael Kelly, published by Undertow Publications. Best Collection, all the Fabulous Beasts by Priya Sharma. Published by Undertow Publications. Best Film slash TV, Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse. Story by Phil Lord, screenplay by Phil Lord and Rodney Rothman. Best Novella, The Tea Master and the Detective by Aliette de Bodard. Published by Subterranean Press. Best Short Story, Down Where Sound Comes Blunt by G.V. Anderson. Printed in Fantasy and Science Fiction, March-April issue 2018. 
Best Horror Novel, the August Derleth Award, Little Eve by Katrina Ward, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Best Fantasy Novel, the Robert Holdstock Award, The Bitter Twins by Jen Williams, published by Headline. The Carl Edward Wagner Award, Ian Waits. The end of the ceremony always marks the end of the convention, and the attendees gradually faded away, back to their homes and writing desks to work on the next generation of stories. A final word should go to mentioning FantasyCon's red cloaks. These are the tireless volunteers who make the event work. The volunteer team are a dedicated little family who are almost unique to the convention scene. They give up their time for the event, and their work is a testimony to how good it always is, despite any logistical and organisational problems. Lambda Cubed, the continuing mystery of Half-Life 3. The Half-Life series of games has been the subject of praise, conjecture and mystery since the release of its first instalment in 1998. Twenty-one years later, whispers and theories regarding the elusive Half-Life 3, or possibly Half-Life 2 Episode 3, have partially been put to rest with the announcement of Half-Life Alex. But why has this new chapter in the revolutionary series taken so long to surface, and how does it seem set to differ from what was expected? To quickly preface this article, Half-Life 2 Episode 3's absence has received so much attention and speculation over the 12 years since the release of Episode 2 that it would be difficult to cover every factor or theory relevant to it. Additionally, the secrecy and general unwillingness of Valve, the developer of the games, to discuss the future of the Half-Life series until now, combined with the number of conspiracies and hoaxes created over time, make it difficult to determine where fact ends and rumour begins. With that said, we have tried to avoid presenting anything unconfirmed or uncertain as fact, and any theories discussed here are just those. Theories. Now for some context. The Half-Life games have long been considered some of the greatest PC video games ever, especially Half-Life 2, released in 2004, and its episodes, released in 2006 and 2007. In terms of gameplay, the games are fairly standard first-person shooters with some elements of puzzle-solving woven in as well. Where the series really shines is in its story, which follows gun-toting theoretical physicist Gordon Freeman and the way it tells it. Spoilers follow. During his work at the top-secret and mildly illegal Black Mesa research facility, Freeman is forced into a fight for survival after an experiment goes awry and unleashes a tide of alien monstrosities from a world called Zen. Upon defeating the alien's leader, the Nihilanth, at the close of the first game, he is met by the sinister G-Man and placed in extra-dimensional stasis. He is returned to Earth at the start of the second game to find that humanity is now oppressed by an otherworldly dictatorship known as the Combine, from which the Zen creatures were attempting to escape in the first game. Gordon himself, due to his actions at Black Mesa, has become a symbol for the underground resistance, and his arrival sparks a full-on rebellion to overthrow the Combine regime. Episodes 1 and 2 continued this story from Gordon's destruction of the Combine Citadel, following him and his friend and ally, Alex Vance, as they escaped the ruins of City 17 and made the dangerous journey to a rebel base in the countryside. Throughout the first two games, they fight off remnants of the Combine forces and learn that the Combine rulers, manipulative creatures known as advisors, have disturbing contingency plans which are being set into motion. At the close of Episode 2, Gordon and Alex are about to set off in search of the Borealis, 
a ship which vanished many years ago during an experiment by Black Mesa's rival, Apatia Science. However, just as they are boarding a helicopter to leave, the Combine ambush them, killing Alex's father and Gordon's colleague Eli Vance, before being driven off. It is on this tragic cliffhanger that the game, and indeed the series, ended. Episode 3 was scheduled for release later in 2007, but it never appeared. All the signs were that Valve had the game in development, from published concept art, to the tie-in with the Portal games, to interviews with Valve staff such as Mark Laidlaw, lead writer for the Half-Life series. However, over the last 12 years, almost the entire team who worked on the original Half-Life series have left Valve. While there was never an official cancellation of Episode 3, it seemed highly likely that the game would never be completed or released. In 2017, Laidlaw published a short story titled Epistle 3 on his personal blog a year after his departure from Valve. Written as a letter from Gertrude Fremont to Dearest Player, it implies what may have been the planned plot of Episode 3, with character and place names altered. It seems this was a way of making the story of the game public despite Episode 3 never being released. And yet, speculation continued that the most notorious piece of vaporware since 2011's Duke Nukem Forever might still be in the works. Valve generally refused to discuss the matter, but even as recently as late 2018, lines of code were being found in Steam VR updates referring to Zen, Vortigaunts, and HLVR, which was taken to suggest a virtual reality game set in the Half-Life universe was in development. Such a theory was not without precedent, as Valve have historically used the Half-Life games to showcase new technology. Half-Life was the first game to use the Gold Source engine, and while 2004's Counter-Strike was the first game to utilise its successor, Source, Half-Life 2 was the first to truly demonstrate the engine's potential beyond mere first-person shooter combat. Most notably, Half-Life 2's Gravity Gun was an excellent way to demonstrate the physics capabilities of the newly developed Source engine. Based on these past actions and Valve's current work on their own VR system, it was not hard to imagine that a new instalment in the Half-Life series would utilise VR technology. And sure enough, the trailer for Half-Life Alex, released on the 21st of October, confirmed that the return to Combine-controlled Earth will take place through the medium of virtual reality. For the first time, the series will see the player take on the role of cocky and tech-savvy Alex Vance, rather than the silent yet determined Gordon Freeman. As a non-player character in Half-Life 2, Alex primarily used her skills to unlock doors and bypass security systems to help Gordon. In Half-Life Alex, it seems that the player will gain this hacking ability, with manual inputs required to properly hijack combined technology. The game also seems to be set before Half-Life 2, and could thus give an interesting insight into what shaped Alex into the character we know. The Combine invasion of Earth occurred when she was still an infant, and she was raised to adulthood in a world where alien vermin and cybernetic enforcers are commonplace. Whatever Half-Life Alex has in store, its sudden announcement has had an extremely positive reception from Half-Life fans worldwide. Of course, this does not change the fact that it has been 12 years since the last official Half-Life game, the delay becoming near legendary in status. Interestingly enough, the fan-made remaster of the original Half-Life, Black Mesa, has suffered from similar development troubles to the official series. Originally a 2012 mod for Half-Life 2, it was later released by a team called Crowbar Collective as an early access standalone through Steam in 2015. The game is a near-complete remake of the original Half-Life using the Source engine, 
with environments and characters rebuilt from scratch to take advantage of the newer software. However, the final levels of Half-Life, those occurring in Zen, were left out of Black Mesa, originally scheduled for release at Christmas of 2017. The Zen levels have still not surfaced, although there has admittedly been more communication from Crowbar Collective on their progress than Valve ever gave for the main Half-Life series. The Zen levels of Half-Life are generally considered the least good part of an otherwise excellent game, and Crowbar Collective have repeatedly stated their intent to improve upon them. In their most recent preview of Zen, in Black Mesa, slated at the time of writing for a late 2019 release, the area has become a six-hour-long experience of an otherworldly realm, vastly different from the 30-minute conclusion of Half-Life. The series is far from alone in suffering such delays. What kind of factors cause these problems? Black Mesa's developers have been slowed by the requirement to greatly alter and improve a maligned yet vital part of the game, a process which obviously takes time. This same argument was often made regarding Valve and Episode 3, since it is clear from the concept art, Epistle 3, and a few interviews with staff members that the team behind Half-Life had a distinct vision for the game. However, with many of the original Half-Life team having left Valve, how much of this vision still exists, or how much drive there is to realise it, was questionable. This becomes particularly relevant when the unusually flat organisational structure of Valve is considered. Employees are free to work on whatever projects they wish to. It seems, however, that over time the desire to create a new Half-Life game did not vanish, but simply changed. While Episode 3 is still arguably unlikely to appear, Half-Life Alex proves that interest in the setting and the story is very much alive at Valve. Another, and perhaps more cynical, view some took to explain the absence of Episode 3 was that of the profit motive. It makes sense for Valve as a business to focus on those projects judged potentially most profitable. The digital platform Steam, originally intended as a simple updater for Valve's own games in 2003, has since adapted and grown to become the largest online game store and library, complete with its own form of social media services and annual events. Steam has dramatically changed PC gaming has contributed to the digitization of the industry's distribution and made Valve at one point the most profitable company in terms of revenue per employee in the United States. It was easy to believe that Steam is the reason Valve mostly appeared to stop producing games after the release of Dota 2 in 2013. Artifact did eventually follow in 2018, but rapidly faded into obscurity. Indeed, alongside the announcement of Half-Life Alex came a substantial update to Steam itself, enabling local multiplayer over the internet. Valve are also somewhat notorious for long delays when making or updating games. Team Fortress 2, originally shown at E3 in 1999, was not released until 2007 as part of the Orange Box after the entire game was overhauled from the ground up. Initially intended as a realistic modern warfare simulator, akin to Armour released in 2006, the game was reworked into something far more comical, with its focus more on game mechanics and entertainment than realism. The delay and rework of Team Fortress 2 undoubtedly helped both its popularity as well as its longevity, since even 12 years after its release, it is still consistently one of the most played games on Steam. While updates from Valve have become few and far between, with the recent announcement confirming that Valve currently has nothing more to add to Team Fortress 2, the game is still supported mostly through community-created cosmetic items, which are added in seasonal events. Other developers besides Valve have of course demonstrated the merits of delaying a project to ensure the best result possible. 
The 2016 reboot of Doom by id Software was first announced as Doom 4 in 2008, but after various tweaks and iterations was restarted from scratch and eventually showcased simply as Doom in 2014. The full release of the game in 2016 was met with an overwhelmingly positive reception from fans and critics alike. The sequel, Doom Eternal, has similarly been delayed, for the stated reason id Software wished to make sure they're delivering the best experience. However, delays do not always equate to quality upon release. Duke Nukem Forever was in development for 14 years, during which time the developer and the publisher both changed. Upon release, the game was widely considered a letdown. Could concern over a failure such as this have been a significant factor in the absence of Episode 3 and the long wait for Alex? Fan expectations for the Half-Life series have been incredibly high since the release of Half-Life, and as time has passed, the expectation that an Episode 3 or a Half-Life 3 would be nothing short of perfection only grew. It is likely that Valve did not want to underdeliver on such expectations, and had difficulties meeting them. Now, however, Alex acts as a bold statement, not just returning the series to its roots of showcasing new software and technology, but also proving to all that Valve have not abandoned the Half-Life series. Anthem, the game that nearly was. BioWare's Anthem, which released last year, has become one of the most infamous releases of recent years, despite a crowded field for that accolade. This month, we look back at what should have been a transformative title. Who saw Marvel's Iron Man released in 2008 and didn't think, damn, wouldn't it be amazing to fly around in one of those rocket suits? The E3 2017 demo of Anthem seemed to promise that and more. Liberating javelin exosuits, beautiful locales and thrilling cooperative play. It would be like 2014's Destiny, but in three dimensions. Hopes for this game were higher than for almost any other game in recent memory, but in the end, those hopes would crash and burn harder than an overheated javelin. Unbeknownst to any of us over-eager consumers, the production team at BioWare were considerably less optimistic about their product. At the time of the awe-inspiring demo, they had only just learned what the game's name was going to be. Depression and anxiety ran rampant through the staff, and the studio had been bleeding high-level talent for years. As detailed by Kotaku's excellent April article investigating the development process of Anthem, the spectacular failure was borne out as a result of unfocused leadership, antiquated and unjust business practices, and blind faith in a recurring Bioware magic that never materialised. The game supposedly still sold above average and was the fifth best-selling release in 2019 through August, but Bioware still suffered a massive hit to its credibility after a game that hit the shelves bore little resemblance to the thrilling escapist fantasy they promised. They had even diverted staff from other projects they were working on, including an unconfirmed Dragon Age 4, to firm up a game which was eventually panned by critics, who said it had a vague and confusing story, unbearable load times, myriad bugs and glitches, an awful user interface, and gameplay that just wasn't fun, or at least not as fun as we'd expected it to be. At the time of writing, the game has a 59% rating on Metacritic. Anthem is a perfectly fine game.
Yes, you can boot up your gaming system of choice, hop into an Iron Man suit and go off to shoot a bunch of aliens, complete with fantasy-like powers for the different suits. The problem is that we don't expect perfectly fine games from Bioware. We expect great games from them. From the classic Baldur's Gate series in the 90s to later lauded games like the Mass Effect trilogy, Knights of the Old Republic in 2003, and Dragon Age in 2009. These were not perfect games, but they were ambitious and succeeded at breaking new ground in the industry. Anthem didn't do that. Javelin flight feels good, which is impressive considering how late in the design process it was implemented, but it doesn't track with how polished the 2017 demo was. The story is mildly interesting, but unfocused and centred around a hub, Fort Tarsis, which is entirely separate from the main world. The loot system is unrewarding and unclear. The user interface is frustrating and bogs down gameplay. It feels like the game wasn't playtested properly. Most people that own the game don't play it, and few people stream it. It must be said that Bioware have not given up on the game. After an initial ambitious roadmap for post-launch development, they scrapped those plans in favour of making improvements to core gameplay issues. Many of us remember the difficult launch cycle of Bungie's Destiny and know it was able to become a truly great game after enough revisions from a tireless development team. Could Anthem follow a similar trajectory? Maybe. Destiny had a couple of difficult years before the development team managed to turn it around. In the end, by the time its sequel was released, Destiny had been transformed into a top-tier game. Destiny, and its 2017 sequel, is in many ways Anthem's rival and template. Even their names are similar, expansive, mystical, and vague. Anthem was supposed to borrow Destiny's fun, cooperative gameplay, add a healthy dose of Bioware's signature storytelling, and combine it all with the thrill of the javelin exosuits. It, well, it doesn't do that. It encourages cooperative play, to be sure. In fact, it practically demands it, its messages to the player reminding them over and over that the game is intended to be played cooperatively, even after it is set up for private sessions. Unfortunately, cooperative gameplay is an exercise in frustration with Anthem. While the four javelin types are unique and interesting, their ability to work in tandem with other javelins is limited. There are no healing abilities, and support options seem tacked on at best. That wouldn't be so bad if Anthem's loot system was stronger. Guns seem like an afterthought in a game focused primarily on flying about in exosuits, which is just fine, but outfitting javelins is a clunky process which can only be done from the central hub, so there's no switching of loadouts in the field. In the meantime, one of the most frequent complaints about the game, and one of the primary focuses for future improvement according to Bioware, is its early loot system. Not good for a game aiming to be the successor to Destiny. It picks up a bit in the later game, but by then, most consumers will have stopped playing. Finally, like Destiny and Warframe, another looter shooter, Anthem aimed for an expansive science fiction story with mythic overtones and significance. 
What it got was a disjointed narrative opening in the midst of so-called cataclysm, followed by a limited campaign arc with confusing lore and stakes. After playing through the game once, many of the game and side quests become far more interesting and deep because players understand the narrative better. But on the first time through, it's a drudge of uninteresting material. The voice acting is strong, but the relationships aren't in place yet. It's perhaps a reflection of a project that was too ambitious. Bioware wanted to tell their usual clever and expansive single-player story, while at the same time making a viable, massively multiplayer online looter shooter. They are yet to demonstrate that this combination is possible. It is clear that a lot of very talented and thoughtful people put a lot of work into the game. There are threads of creativity and inspiration throughout, but it just doesn't come together in the way we've come to expect from Bioware. The tale just gets worse as we learn about the difficulties the team had building the game in the antiquated Frostbite engine, and the overwhelming pressure on employees to perform above what should have been reasonably expected of them. Regardless of whether Anthem has improved since launch or will do so in the future, in some ways... It's already dead. Perhaps unfairly, the reputations of games are forged in the weeks after their initial release, even for titles which receive years of ongoing development. These initial impressions are difficult to change. When it comes to escapism in all forms of media that are advertised for months or even years in advance, anticipation is everything. The psychology of anticipation and excitement is fascinating in that most of the time, Humans enjoy the anticipation of some future experience more than the actual experience of it. That was certainly true in this case, but the crushing disappointment of the Anthem experience, coming so soon after the letdown of Mass Effect Andromeda in 2017, will certainly lead to reduced expectations for future Bioware projects. To Bioware's credit, they seem determined to fix their mistakes and build on a game that, at its heart, is a fun, if frustrating, experience. Back in February, Bioware promised three post-launch story acts that would expand the world and what players could do in it. After postponement to focus on technical difficulties, the first of those three acts recently ended half a year later. In September, Bioware scrubbed the three-acts timeline, saying they'd instead work on seasonal updates to improve core features. A proportion of fans support them in this effort and believe in the game's future. Perhaps Bioware's efforts will be successful. Destiny faced many of the same problems at launch. While it was fun, it also had many structural issues as a result of executive meddling Time will tell whether the half-dead corpse of Anthem will be able to resurrect itself in the next couple of years, or whether it's just too far gone. But, in the meantime, the story of Anthem is a sad song about a once great studio that overheated, fell from the sky, and crash-landed. <laughs> Available now from the Radio Theatre Workshop. Elite. Lave Revolution. This is Lave, or Lave 1, to give the correct designation. You crashed somewhere here. What do you know about Lave? 
Many independent systems are ruled by warlords and madmen. Lave was once one of the most important systems in the galaxy. In those days, every independent pilot worth their salt got a license from Lave. Lave has been ruled by one man, Hans Walden, for nearly 100 years. Over a hundred years? The same man? Were you alive back then? They call him the Good Doctor. A rebellion forms on Lave. You people need to respect us! Or is it a test? Everything is a test. Many of you aren't old enough to remember the Alioth Rebellion. I don't need heroes. I require diligence and duty. One of the most ambitious full-cast audio productions ever attempted by an independent studio. Captains, I require all vessels to be at combat-ready status within the hour. Featuring Toby Longworth and Beth Eyre, known for Star Wars and wooden overcoats. You aren't aware that the good doctor expects results. Witch, how bold! what are you doing? Now you understand how serious we are. A five-hour full-cast space opera from the creators of Escape Velocity. Multiple warships inbound, sir. I need your ugly ship and its escorts. Based on the official Elite Dangerous novel. I need your pilots, fighters and military expertise. Witness the revolution. In exchange, I offer you... Blave. Well done, Prefect. You're looking tired, my friend. Elite. Lave Revolution. Now available on digital download and custom USB edition from www.radiotheatreworkshop.com or search on your favourite audiobook distributor. Are you really doing your part for Lave's return to glory, citizen? Self-Pub Roundup with the rise of the ebook and the internet, publishing a novel is no longer about access to a printing press. More and more authors, both debut and experienced, are turning to self-publishing as a way to reach more readers, gain an audience for a particularly adventurous or unusual idea, or as a way to capture more of the proceeds of their work. While self-publishing used to be the preserve of those who couldn't get a proper publisher to take them on, it is increasingly being seen as a viable alternative route to finding an audience, with some innovative writers skillfully using social media to cultivate a loyal readership. We at Parallel Worlds would like to celebrate and highlight some of the better self-published novels out there, both to support writers whose work deserves a wider audience, as well as to guide you, our readers, to gems you may otherwise miss. If you've published a science fiction or fantasy novel that you'd like us to review, let us know, editor at parallelworlds.uk. Enemy Immortal predicts that the human race will spread out into the stars and will get to meet a number of aliens along the way. It's set far into the future, when humanity is just one of many interstellar civilizations. Two vast empires struggle for control over the galaxy, the Entanglement and the Immortal Ascendancy. It seems that to have any real chance of survival, a species has to join one of these two empires, and humanity is threatened by a fleet of brutal immortal cyborgs who are on their way to enslave the Earth. To prevent this cataclysmic event, humanity chooses to join the other side. 
This isn't without its complications, however. The entanglement follows a rigid social order and assign a whole race to carry out each single function of their empire. This is a real fear that, as a result, humanity will lose its cultural identity and diversity. Jade Mahalona is someone who shares this fear, not wanting to lose her Hawaiian identity. Personally, if I was Jade, I wouldn't be too concerned about losing at least some of her past, after her own mother experimented on her to give her the ability to read others' feelings and sense electrical fields. Handy skills to have, but really, your own mother? Regardless, Jade's usefulness and intelligence earned her a place as a lieutenant in Earth's Solar Defense Force. Three months out of the academy, and she's made commander of a team sent on a mission to investigate an alien colony that has disappeared. You can imagine what such a fast promotion does for her popularity in the team. Before they even arrive at the colony, they are ambushed by a ten-ton cyborg immortal known as Umlak, who wants to control whatever it was that made a whole colony vanish. Things start to go pear-shaped from there. And, to make matters worse, her performance and that of her team will determine if humanity joins the entanglement or is left to the whim of the immortal cyborg. No pressure, then. Enemy Immortal is the author's debut novel, and although it would have benefited from a good editor, it's an impressive start. The diverse cast of characters are exceptional and imaginative, with strong personalities, and there are some really alien aliens. My favourite being the Daisypods, which remind me of playing Plants vs Zombies. Daisypods are plant-based, tumbleweed-shaped creatures, resting by sticking their feet into soil to suck up nutrients. The cultures of these diverse creatures are as complex as the creatures themselves, and a great deal of comfort and thought has clearly gone into the cross-cultural dynamics and communication. One race even communicates via movement. The story is interesting, but linear with little real surprise. However, there is plenty of action, which is engaging and fun. The plot takes focus over world-building, although the book isn't devoid of this, helping to set a swift pace. Being fairly plot-driven and fast means you do really need to pay attention, as there are regular point-of-view jumps between characters. Some editing of how these shifts take place would have helped divert a feeling of disorientation. The book also shares a flaw with many self-published books, a propensity to tell rather than show. But Enemy Immortal has a lot going for it, offering messages on cultural identity and diversity while presenting some genuinely interesting aliens in some intriguing ideas, all wrapped in a fun story. Recommended for a light, not too serious sci-fi read. Enemy Immortal by Jim Meeks Johnson is available from Amazon. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, Western films and series were screen staples, while authors were beginning to write post-Western novels that challenged the ideals of the traditional Western story. In film and TV, the 21st century seems to have almost entirely discarded the Western genre, although small resurgences such as Westworld and The Hateful Eight helped to prevent it from dying out completely. Thankfully, novels with a post-Western theme are alive and kicking, tales that are often combined with other genres, these genre combinations are grouped into a subgenre called Weird Western, and have been written since the early 80s by authors such as Joe R. Lansdale, Stephen King, Emma Bull, Gemma Files, and Cormac McCarthy. 
It's rare to see a weird western that slips into horror and seriously weird fantasy at the same time, though. Step forward, the majestic 311. Back in 1903, the 311, a train of 13 carriages known to locals as the Majestic, is carrying 100 souls towards a tunnel that will lead them under the Canadian Rockies. The train safely enters the tunnel, but never emerges out of the other side. Search parties comb through the tunnel and surrounding area, to no avail. Passengers and train are never seen again, although some members of the search parties claim to hear a ghostly whistle echoing in the tunnel. The only evidence of the train ever existing is an oriental hand fan spread wide like a butterfly's wing. The train slips into legend, a tale to be whispered around campfires. Some years later, as winter snow blankets the Rockies, the Leyland Baxter Gang, a rough group of cattle thieves, gunmen and cutthroats, wait on horseback outside the infamous tunnel. They plan on robbing the 5409, which is secretly carrying a whole train car full of cash, destined to pay the workers of the British Columbia gold and copper mines. The sun drops before a train appears at speed, and they frantically board a locomotive that by all rights should be slowing, but, if anything, seems to be gaining momentum. These seven unlucky souls haven't boarded the 5409, but the missing Majestic 311, a train that never stops, and from which no one ever escapes. The Majestic 311 is a wild ride that fits well into the weird category, as things get stranger and stranger the deeper the gang descend through the train. The author does a great job of creating some rough, dangerous characters that, even though they are clearly not the nicest of people, you can't help rooting for when you realise what they're faced with. That doesn't stop the author killing them off one by one, though. Perhaps not all of them, but you'll have to find that out for yourself. The pace is frantic, with the action picking up not long after they board the train and then hardly letting up throughout the rest of the book. The author has a real talent for describing action scenes and doesn't draw back from vivid, visceral detail. Be warned, there is a fair amount of bad language, so if you're easily offended, this book isn't for you. The quality of the writing is excellent, with some great dialogue interspaced with dark humour that prevents the novel from becoming too grim. The author has been writing and self-publishing books for a number of years now, and his experience shows. The story itself is original and as weird as I've read in a long time. I've never taken any serious or illegal drugs, but I can imagine the resulting hallucinogenic trip wouldn't be too dissimilar from reading The Majestic 311. Much safer and cheaper, too, if Breaking Bad is anything to go by. If you like something a bit different, or want to read something weirder than a £3 note, this book is for you. The Majestic 311 by Keith C. Blackmore is available from Amazon. It is the 1890s, and London is a fog-shrouded half-ruin in the years following the Martian invasion. Fog-bound Empire in Flames is a spiritual sequel to War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, and the events of that book hang over the plot. Sir Pelham Simmons is a man-catcher, who ventures out into the dangerous wasteland beyond the city's walls where the police won't go to bring in fugitives. The author, Gareth Clegg, explicitly set out to write a steampunk novel, and Fogbound revels in its genre. It is a tight, well-constructed and racy adventure novel. Simmons is cantankerous, middle-aged, chivalrous and gruff, damaged from a past we're given no more than a glimpse into. Most of the characters, in fact, are interesting, albeit often neatly divisible into goodies and baddies. 
Basil Jett is a naive engineering genius whose childlike viewpoint forms a neat counterpoint to Simmons. And the friendship that develops between these two main characters is charming. Clegg understands that characters need both things they're good at in order to be interesting, as well as flaws in order to be likeable. Fogbound is clearly the result of a lot of passion for Victorian London. Many of the characters' names are rooted in history, and the locations described, whilst warped towards the fantastic, are grounded by evident research. This is a formidably well-planned fantasy world. The plot carries you along merrily. Its conspiracies, betrayals and intrigue are not always the simplest to follow, but you hardly mind as the ride is so much fun. Exposition is smartly left to the bare minimum. The alien remnants of the invasion are clearly this world's most threatening inhabitants, but this plot only tangentially concerns them, leaving you with the tantalising knowledge that there is much more to this fictional universe than you've seen. However, Fogbound is not perfect. One limitation of self-publishing is presumably access to editorial scrutiny, but the odd typo and grammatical slip are easily overlooked here. The writing is rich with descriptions and adjectives, all of which add colour, but does on occasion dip into purple prose. Power armour of Space Marines variety feels well-worn as tropes go, but that's probably my preference. More seriously, and from a structural point of view, there are a clutch of important characters introduced late into the piece who are therefore not as fleshed out as they could be. The love story also seems an awkward addition, seemingly built upon nothing more than a few infrequent interactions. However, none of this takes the pleasure out of Fogbound. The author's delight in the period and thoroughness in research make every page rich and colourful. Clegg has succeeded in writing quintessential steampunk, seemingly mostly for his own enjoyment, and that sense of fun seeps through every page. Pick it up, and let's hope there's a sequel. Fogbound Empire in Fames by Gareth Clegg is available from garethclegg.com and Amazon. Star Wars Rebels, a love letter to the fans. The 2014 to 2018 animated Star Wars series Rebels can be a hard sell to fans. On first look, it's a colourful, kiddie take on the Star Wars universe. The animation style tends towards large eyes and toy-like proportions, and it all looks very un-Star Wars and quite a lot like a toy commercial. Under this veneer, though, Rebels is a lovingly crafted dose of pure Star Wars, bringing lots of much-loved non-canon material into canon addressing many questions and speculations that fans have been throwing around since 1977, and even gently poking fun at the more absurd elements of the Star Wars franchise. All this is built around a core of space dogfights, lightsaber duels, blaster fights, speeder chases, roguish smugglers, heroic patriots, rousing John Williams-like scores, and a great story. Everything any fan can ask for from a Star Wars experience. That having been said, Rebels isn't meant to be a traditional Star Wars film experience. From the start, the pacing is slower, it's more thoughtful, and takes plenty of time to explore its themes and build its characters. Each episode in some way contributes to the season arc, and each season builds on the previous one to tell a four-year story about how the Rebellion got to the point at which a farm boy could destroy the Death Star. Rebels 
begins five years before A New Hope and ends just months before Jin Erso transmits the Death Star plans from Scarif at the climax of Rogue One, which itself is only a short time before A New Hope begins. In many ways, Rebels can be thought of as the backstory to Rogue One and A New Hope. The much-loved Timothy Zahn character, Grand Admiral Thrawn, Interdictor Star Destroyers, YT-2400s, Inquisitors, TIE Defenders, and numerous other ships, droids, characters, and locations that were once the province of the expanded universe, the material from decades of novels, comics, and games that was never officially part of the Star Wars canon, now known as Legends, are firmly established as canon through the seasons of Rebels. Details that have long been debated by diehard fans are addressed almost casually, like, where exactly does a freighter like the Millennium Falcon carry cargo? We find out what happened to all those Clone Wars-era ships and equipment, what became of the Jedi that survived Order 66. What exactly happened to all those clone troopers, and how the Empire became a tyrannical monster, and why it took 20 years for the Rebellion to actually do something about it. Delightfully, there are many moments where it's clear fans are speaking through the characters, such as the episode in which Kanan says, Do or do not, there is no try. Ezra replies, What does that even mean? How can I do something if I don't try to do it? To which Kanan responds, Well, see. Actually, that one's always confused me too, but Master Yoda sure used to say it a lot. Rebels addresses so many things that have been discussed by fans for years that it's impossible to even scratch the surface in one article. It takes time to establish that the fledgling rebellion had to steal, beg and trade for the supplies necessary to actually become the Rebel Alliance. And when Luke jumps in that X-Wing in A New Hope, we now know that the ship, the base, the fuel to fly it and the supplies sitting around came from people working for years to build everything up to the point where a farm boy can jump in a fighter like he's hopping in a rental car. The planet of Lothal is pivotal to the overall plot of Rebels and has many of the visual cues we're all familiar with seeing in Star Wars. Buildings with domed roofs, open markets, speeders zooming around, white armoured stormtroopers patrolling the streets. Right from the first episode, we're shown ground-level Imperial occupation and discover a lot of the internal workings of the Empire, a topic much discussed by fans. We see how the local governors enforce imperial laws, forcing displaced citizens into makeshift camps, all the result of Moff Tarkin's iron diktats. The allusion to Nazi-occupied countries in the Second World War can't be ignored, and much of the action during Season 1 could be reskinned as a series about the French Resistance, although with spaceships. The Ghost, the hero starship, and her crew archetypes quickly resolve into actual characters, and it's clear this isn't just a pick-and-mix of Star Wars tropes. The bickering crew of the cramped ship are each running from something, living between the cracks of an oppressive regime, driven to help others. It's something we've not quite seen in official Star Wars before, but it's something that the old expanded universe explored in detail. 
the spaces between the large-scale action of the films. The pilot and owner of the ghost, Hera Sindula, is also the leader of this cell of the rebellion, trying to find a balance between helping individuals and doing the most good for the most people. There's the muscle, Zeb, who witnessed the Empire massacre his entire race for refusing imperial rule. Young Mandalorian outcast Sabine Wren is weapons expert and artist, and through her, fans get to explore Mandalorian culture. Chopper is an obsolete, cranky droid salvaged by Hera from a crashed Y-Wing at the end of the Clone Wars. Ezra Bridger was orphaned at the start of the occupation and is a street-smart kid cast in the mould of Aladdin. Finally, there's Kanan Jarrus, who was a Jedi Padawan. When the clones carried out Order 66, he's been in hiding since the death of his master, and unlike many Jedi we've seen, is scared and uncertain. It's difficult not to make the comparison to Joss Whedon's Firefly during Season 1, not because the crew of the Ghost are in any way copies of the crew of the Serenity, but because these rebels evoke the same bickering, loving family vibe as those rebels. Senator Bail Organa, Leia's father, makes an appearance on the familiar white corridors of the Blockade Runner early on in Season 1. This callback to the end of Revenge of the Sith is the first of many links between characters from the prequel trilogy, Clone Wars animation, and the chronologically later films. Rebels ties all these scattered threads together, showing how they influence the formation of the Rebellion. Other appearances to look forward to are Vader himself, Ahsoka Tano, Hondo Onaka, Lando Calrissian, Clone Trooper Rex, Saw Gerrera, Wedge Antilles, Leia Organa, Mon Motha, Obi-Wan, and Darth Maul, to name but a few. These cameo and reprises help to fill in missing backstory, give characters a close on their personal stories from earlier outings, or set up their characters for later down the line. Towards the midpoint of Season 2, there's a bottle episode that draws heavily from the classic sci-fi film Enemy Mine. Zeb and the Imperial agent Callus are stranded together on a hostile alien world and forced to rely on each other for survival. This is a great example of how well the characters in Rebels are put together. What could easily have been a one-dimensional Imperial and a fairly simplistic alien warrior actually have a full range of motivations, emotions and history that inform their actions. It's clear that Callus genuinely believes that the Empire is bringing peace and security to a very troubled galaxy, and fervently believes in his mission to stop dissidents and rebels that are, for reasons he doesn't understand, working to destroy order and safety. The interplay between Zeb and Callus often echoes the discussions between fans in the endless debate over whether the Empire is really intrinsically evil. Rebels has many of these moments in which the viewer is confronted with questions about the ethics of the Rebellion's methods, or whether every stormtrooper gunned down by the protagonists is actually a bad guy. Early on, Ezra is sent to infiltrate a cadet training group that encourages a survival-of-the-fittest mentality, heavily implying that stormtroopers are indoctrinated from a young age. Comparisons to the Hitler Youth Programme can't be ignored here. 
Star Wars is a great vehicle for these kinds of debates, and fans of the franchise will probably still be discussing the ethics of the Rebel Alliance and moral justification of the Tarkin Doctrine long into the future. Over the course of the four seasons, we get to see the spaces between the Imperial occupation and the Rebellion. The expanded universe explored the Black Sun, Huts, and other criminal groups. Yet until the recent solo film, we've only really seen Jabba the Hutt on screen as a single example of the criminal underworld. Rebels takes a deep dive into how regular people navigate an increasingly dangerous galaxy and how the line between crime and survival becomes blurry when the Empire is your governing body. The crew of the Ghost have to contend with groups like the Mining Guild as well as small-scale criminal syndicates and individuals all jostling for scraps. Through the series it starts to become clear why there might be such a large criminal underbelly in the galaxy. Smugglers and rogues are almost a necessity for daily life under an empire that tightly controls and limits legitimate trade. The Force has always been a hotly discussed topic amongst fans. Rebels doesn't shy away from revelations that are later echoed in The Last Jedi and began all the way back in The Clone Wars animation. Kanan encounters a creature called the Bendu, who introduces itself as the one in the middle, and speaks in mystical tones. Kanan's conversations with the Bendu seem like the writers and fans debating the nature of the Force, firmly establishing the grey nature of beings that aren't either light or dark. There's a scene in Season 4 where the Emperor is chanting over what very much looks like a cauldron, suggesting that his Sith abilities might well be augmented by other uses of the Force. At one point, Kanan, Ashoka and Ezra explore an ancient Jedi temple, which introduces the idea that the Force seems to be at least partially sentient on its own. Perhaps the will of the Force mentioned by Qui-Gon in The Phantom Menace is not a metaphor after all. Kanan meets the temple guards, wielding yellow lightsaber blades, the first time this colour is seen in canon, which seem to be both visions and also solid entities. Certain animals seem to be able to tap into the Force, but certainly aren't Jedi or Sith. There's certainly a much wider universe out there still. Yoda even appears a couple of times, force-projecting from Dagobah, significantly foreshadowing a similar and hotly debated feat by Luke in The Last Jedi. These may seem trivial to casual viewers, but to fans these are significant entries into the lore of Star Wars. For many it will be satisfying that Star Wars under Disney has firmly returned the Force to the realms of mysticism and magic, as opposed to George Lucas's attempt to scienceify the Jedi during the prequel era. Midichlorians, anyone? Others will feel that the Force is perhaps becoming a little too bedknobs and broomsticks. Rebels certainly leans more heavily into the mystical side. Season 3 gives us a moment where old Ben sees a silhouette running back to the low-domed farmhouse, as we hear Auntie Baru calling, Luke! This scene is so very familiar, it's a stark reminder of just how close to A New Hope this is. This is Ben Kenobi we see. Full Alec Guinness, not the Clone Wars general, but the seasoned, dedicated, aged mentor. This little glance, along with the recording K-N has of Obi-Wan, which plays right at the start of Season 1, are the only solid links we have to A New Hope. 
Yet by proxy there are so many connections it's impossible to count. Locations, characters, ships, droids, even the way the camera frames shots are all intrinsically linked back to the 1977 film. By the end of season three, a large part of the rebellion is being hounded by Grand Admiral Thrawn almost to destruction. And the usual flute cards played in Star Wars to snatch victory from defeat fail one by one. The future of the rebellion looks bleak. The result of this failure leaves the remaining leaders concluding that it was too soon to make a move. This echoes the sentiments expressed in Rogue One. But now we have an insight into the seeming cowardice of the rebel leaders. They did try it, less than two years before Jyn Erso's call to action, and lost almost everything. Season 4 closes the loop and returns to Lothal to complete Ezra's personal story. Of course, we know that this isn't the true end. Chopper, the astromech, can be seen in the background at the Yavin 4 base when Jin arrives. The name General Sindola can be heard over the intercom too. Later, above Scarif, the ghost can be seen fighting with the fleet to get the Death Star plans out. The crew of the ghost, Hera, Kanan, Zeb, Sabine, Ezra and Chopper, might not be as famous as the boy from Tatooine, or the smuggler and his wookie companion. But without them, the Rebel Alliance would surely have struggled to destroy the Death Star and bring about the end of the Empire. Twenty nineteen in horror cinema. The twenty tens continue to be a great decade for horror movie fans. 2019 brought us a wide variety of offerings, from Jim Jarmusch's deadpan zombie hunters in The Dead Don't Die to the high-concept Superman as slasher stylings of Brightburn. This month, we take a look at a few of the year's biggest releases and recommend some gems you may have missed. First up, it's Us. Jordan Peele's follow-up to the barnstormingly brilliant Get Out is less immediately appealing than its predecessor, but it marries that film's social satire to a more complex narrative told in uncomfortable shades of moral grey. In the film's terrifying pre-title sequence, a little girl wanders into a beachside hall of mirrors and has a life-changing encounter with a doppelganger. Three decades later, she comes back to the beach with her husband and children. She fears that her doubler is going to return for her, but the danger soon proves to be much greater. Us is a film made to be argued about, what initially looks like a home invasion thriller with a twist quickly broadens its scope and keeps broadening it right up until the closing shot. It's not simply about fear of the uncanny or the other. This is a story that raises questions about nature versus nurture, ethics and strategies of resistance to oppression, and the implications of living in a society with a permanent underclass, and it refuses to provide any easy answers. After its tour de force opening, it's content not to be very scary. This is a movie that's much more interested in frightening concepts than it is making you jump. It benefits enormously from its performances. Lupita Nyong'o is breathtaking in her double lead role, but she's amply supported by Winston Duke, Elizabeth Moss and Tim Heidecker. While Shahadi Wright-Joseph, who was 13 at the time of filming, very nearly steals the whole show and is definitely a young actor to watch out for. Us is a more uneven film than Get Out. It's probably too long and it's arguable whether the exposition in the third act adds or detracts from the experience. 
Nevertheless, this is a solid second feature from Peel, who continues to be an exciting and thoughtful voice in genre filmmaking. Next, it's Midsommar. Another highly anticipated sophomore effort, Midsommar came out less than a year after hit supernatural horror Hereditary. One wonders when writer-director Ari Aster has time to sleep. It follows Danny, played by Florence Pugh, as, still reeling from a family tragedy, she joins her boyfriend Christian, played by Jack Rayner, and his university friends at a nine-day midsummer celebration hosted by the Haga, a remote Swedish community. Fans of folk horror will find very familiar territory in Midsummer. It's weirdly free of suspense and even surprise. There are hypnotic, psychedelic sequences, some pleasingly squishy gore effects shown off by the bright sunlight that permeates most of the movie, and a number of visual nods to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, seemingly just for the hell of it. The story, though, goes exactly where you think it will. It also suffers from the inclusion of Reuben, less a character than a mound of grotesque cliches about mental and physical disability that would have felt uncomfortably outdated 20 years ago. However, there's an emotional truth in the way Midsommar portrays grief and the terrible toll it takes on personal lives. At the film's heart is a couple who really need to split up. Christian is bored with the relationship but can't bear to be the bad guy, while Danny is unfulfilled but can't face one more loss. Ari Aster has described this as his breakup movie, and it's as that that it truly shines. The Haga are a source of predictable horror for most of Midsummer's protagonists, but they give Danny a new way of looking at death, a radical empathy that she desperately needs, and the strength to make changes to her life. Seeing the story from her perspective ultimately saves the film from being a mere retread of The Wicker Man. Next, Child's Play. This reboot of the long-running horror series had some fun ideas, but the execution is muddled. In a bold move, it begins by throwing out the central premise of all the other Child's Play films. Instead of being a regular doll possessed by a serial killer, Chucky is now an AI-controlled robot whose safety protocols have been disabled by a vengeful factory worker. Chucky bonds with Andy, the film's 13-year-old protagonist, but Andy soon discovers that having a killer doll for a friend is an extremely mixed blessing. Mark Hamill gives a typically excellent vocal performance as Chucky, and there are some good set pieces. The scene in which Chucky learns about murder from the movies is particularly funny. However, the film fails to capitalise on its conceit of what if Alexa but evil, and shows clear evidence of reshoots. Fans of the franchise may be better off waiting for the Don Mancini-penned television series due next year. Next, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was most hotly anticipated in the US, and it's based on a series of children's books first published in the 1980s that are a staple of many American childhoods. The film actually goes a little further back in time to 1968, the period hasn't been picked for nostalgia value. The decade is presented as the time America lost its innocence, and thus provides a fitting backdrop for this film's surprisingly sober coming-of-age tale. The film has an interesting, not-quite-anthology structure. Its young protagonists discover a book of horror stories that begin to play out in real life, menacing their friends and family. The computer-generated effects are variable in quality, but the practical ones are great, and it's clear enormous care has been taken in replicating Stephen Gamble's iconic illustrations. 
This is not a movie for adults, but that's not a criticism. It's smart, it's got plenty of great scares, and its intended teenage audience will lap it up. Next, It, Chapter 2. The sequel to 2017's It, Chapter 1 is not without its pleasures, but it's badly structured and distinctly overlong. 27 years after the Losers Club confronted It as children, they are summoned back to Derry by Mike Hanlon, played by Isaiah Mustafa, the only member to remain in the town. It has come back, and they must fulfil their oath and defeat their nemesis for good. The grown-up losers are all convincing. Director Andy Machete's decision to allow the child actors to play the parts as they like and ask the adult actors to copy them seems to have paid off. Bill Hader's waspish, vulnerable Richie is particularly strong. The opening, in which the losers are reintroduced and it lures a girl under the bleachers in a scene at least as good as the original's hire Georgie, works really well. Sadly, from this point, the film deteriorates into a series of identically formatted scenes in which individual losers visit a location, have a flashback from their childhoods, and are scared by it. The final confrontation runs very long, and the substitution of a 30-foot-tall CGI spider for the book's more genuinely weird eldritch monster seems like a timid decision. Ultimately, what made IT Chapter 1 so great is what hampers the sequel. The children's timeline is the best part of the novel, with the adult sections being something closer to a framing device. Lacking the strong coming-of-age throughline of the first film, Chapter 2 flounders, and the interesting character beats it provides fail to save it from being mostly a collection of set pieces without an emotional core. Next up, Zombieland, Double Tap. Coming a decade after 2009's well-regarded Zombieland, and with its director and writers having moved on to the Venom and Deadpool franchises respectively, this sequel can hardly help feeling like an afterthought. Ten years after the events of the original film, zombie hunting found family Columbus, Tallahassee, Wichita and Little Rock have moved into the White House. They bond and bicker, meet new characters and fight newly evolved super zombies, go their separate ways and eventually take a road trip to reunite. Double Tap is fairly charming lightweight fun, with some good gags and a mid-credit sequence worth waiting around for. Unfortunately, it suffers from a lack of structure, feeling more like a collection of sketches than a coherent whole, and with character arcs that retread ground covered in the first film. For better or worse, it's also on the very lightest end of comedy horror. Only the most squeamish will find anything to disturb them here. At the time of writing, we don't yet know about Sophia Tackle's remake of Black Christmas, due to be released on December 13th. A female writer-director taking on the seminal proto-slasher sounds intriguing. Let's hope it provides a memorable end to the year in horror. Next, happy death day to you. This sequel to 2017's terrific comedy slasher Happy Death Day didn't make the same impact at the box office as its predecessor, but it's well worth seeking out for home viewing. The beautiful simplicity of the first film's Groundhog Day but with murder premise has been replaced with a more convoluted sci-fi infected plot. However, there's still a high hit rate of both laughs and deaths. The series' secret weapon is leading actor Jessica Roth. Her flawed protagonist tree is charismatic and very funny, but there's also a real depth to her emotions, allowing two you to earn its occasional moments of pathos. Next, the perfection. 
The Perfection never had a cinematic release, landing on Netflix with relatively little fanfare in May. Don't let that fool you, this is one of the year's most interesting horror films. After the death of her mother, who she's been caring for, former cello prodigy Charlotte, played by Alison Williams, seeks out her old music teacher and finds his new star pupil, Lizzie, played by Logan Browning. The Perfection plays out in a series of marked chapters, constantly shifting its tone, its apparent genre and the nature and relationship of its characters. It lands somewhere very dark, but ultimately satisfying. The film also comes with a content warning for basically everything. If you would prefer to be spoiled, its Wikipedia entry provides a thorough plot description. Then there's In Fabric. Already sporting a handful of awards, Peter Strickland's latest is a dazzling, woozy, darkly comic slice of British weirdery. Old-fashioned department store Dentley and Soper is staffed by women who look like mannequins dressed as the Bride of Frankenstein and then brought to life. It advertises itself with an image of them ritualistically beckoning towards the camera, and it sells Marianne Jean-Baptiste's unhappy divorcee Sheila a cursed dress, which travels from person to person, spreading catastrophe in its wake. Part ghost story, part workplace satire, often disturbing and occasionally uncomfortably sexy, In Fabric takes place in a world where any collection of words can be a spell, and any image can evoke existential horror if you look at it just right. Next up, come to Daddy. If you didn't catch Aunt Thompson's startling debut film at one of its festival appearances, you may have missed your chance to see it in a cinema, but it should be hitting small screens in 2020. Elijah Wood plays Norval Greenwood, a young man with a gold-plated phone and a terrible haircut, who arrives at a remote cabin hoping to reconcile with the estranged father he's never spoken to. However, the man he finds isn't at all what he hoped for. Toby Harvard's sharply written script puts Norval through a series of increasingly disturbing events before descending into outright blood-soaked madness in the third act, but remains funny and strangely touching throughout. Michael Smiley also deserves plaudits for his turn as one of the year's weirdest and most memorable villains. Finally, there's Ready or Not. This smart, bloody black comedy takes a simple premise and runs with it, pun very much intended. It follows Grace, played by Samara Weaving, as she marries into the Ladomus family, only to discover that her new in-laws aren't the harmless kind of rich eccentrics. Tradition demands they play a midnight game of hide-and-seek, to the death. Ready or Not's thesis that the rich aren't like you and me is familiar territory for horror, but it plays it out with wit, a brilliantly spare, tense narrative structure, and some truly wince-inducing gore effects. Weaving is terrific in the lead role, running the gamut from gammon charm to shaking terror and animalistic fury, and she's given great support from the rest of the cast, with Adam Brody's sympathetic alcoholic and Andy McDowell's deceptively warm matriarch the standouts. Let's talk about Ad Astra. Ad Astra is a sci-fi epic set in the near future. It stars Brad Pitt as Roy McBride, an astronaut who voyages to the furthest reaches of the solar system in search of his father Clifford, who vanished 16 years earlier and is now thought to be responsible for a series of catastrophic energy surges on Earth. Our editors share their reactions. 
I can't remember the last time I thought a film was so theoretically interesting and so painfully misjudged in execution. I thought it was a really weird film. It felt like several good ideas for several different films, jostling for the same 120 minutes. As a sci-fi fan, I enjoyed the production quality, nods towards plausibility in places, such as the grotesque price inflation of the in-flight conveniences, for example, and majestic visuals. But this felt like a film that didn't really know what it was trying to be. What was the point of the monkey bit and the moon pirates? There's no plot or character reason for them at all, and they don't warrant inclusion on their own artistic merit. The monkey sequence was technically good, the tension was built well, the reveal was genuinely shocking, and the monkeys were portrayed threateningly. But tonally, the sequence being there at all didn't feel right. There's a plausibility angle too. The idea that, in the vastness of space, a ship on a finely calibrated journey to Mars carrying a VIP on an urgent mission might be close enough to a distress call to just pop over seems off. Perhaps the action scenes were to trick the action fans into coming too? There's been some suggestion that they were filmed by second unit director Dan Bradley during reshoots, so they may not have been part of the original version for the movie. I really wanted to be moved by the film, but couldn't. It frustrated me. I want more films about masculinity and fatherhood and the impossible expectations of stoicism and pragmatism imposed on men. And I don't feel good putting one down when it's been made, but... I just couldn't connect to Roy. The performance almost felt like a parody of what Ryan Gosling was doing in First Man. He was very emotionally packed down in that film, but you always knew what he was really feeling. Whereas Brad Pitt's Roy is a blank surface, except when his emotions break through from nowhere and then vanish again, which sounds like it could be interesting, but in this case, it wasn't. Yes, agreed. In spite of his moments of heroism, Roy did seem a bit whiny and useless. I don't think that Brad Pitt was really right for the part. He does suave very well, but I'm not sure about tender, bruised or confused. Although I did quite like the diary entry narration, it gave the whole thing a touch of noir. Gosling does expressionless emotion really well though. His face is geared up for it. He can just stare at a wall and radiate strong feelings. For me, hearing Roy constantly tell the audience what he was really thinking and feeling undertook all of that surface-level emotional constipation. The voiceover and the physical traits felt like they belonged to different characters. I think I could have liked the voiceover more with a different, more layered lead performance. I also felt that the ending was weak. If the film had ended ten minutes sooner, I, I would have felt much more kindly disposed towards it. I agree. It tried for a happy ending and was left with bathos. Leaving it on a note of uncertainty would have been much stronger. I also disliked the moral takeaway. It seemed to be saying, old white men should stop banging on about space and finding extraterrestrial life, and start thinking about important things like their families, which seems a bit narrow-minded. I don't see how being a tolerable husband and father is incompatible with curiosity about the universe. Well, quite. I, I think the intended moral was probably more like, if we are alone in the universe and nobody's coming to save us, we should act accordingly. And that's not something I have a problem with. I do think it's interesting that in this kind of film, 
whether we are alone in the universe because there's no extraterrestrial life or no God is an essentially interchangeable point. But if that's the case, surely whether we all band together to save the planet is more important than whether Brad Pitt reconnects with his ex-wife. <laughs> Was there anything you really liked about the film? I mean, this sounds like a damning with faint praise, but I genuinely admired the colour palette, the gradual shift from calm greys, blues and greens in the opening to the angry reds and oranges of locations in the, the third act works really well. I did really enjoy the sequence in which Roy travels to Neptune. Space is maddeningly lonely, and human life seems impossibly fragile in it, and I feel the film nailed that in the latter third. I also enjoyed the visuals. I think the film was shot really well, and conveyed the scale and majesty of the solar system. Ultimately though, for me, it's just trying to do too many things to be a triumph. It's trying to be an action film, or at least appeal to action fans. It's trying to leave us with a moral takeaway that feels muddled. It's trying to elicit sympathy for characters it barely introduces, like the elderly minder who has to tap out due to heart trouble. As a film, it would have been better, tighter, and more coherent were it to pursue one of these threads. If it was a tight, claustrophobic account of one astronaut flying out to visit his possibly dead father, it could have been great. I'd happily watch two hours of a 2001-esque lonely trip through space to see a mad dad. If it was an action film about piracy on a near-future moon, it could have been great. If it was a twisty conspiracy thriller, it could have been great. Ultimately, one film isn't enough to do justice to all the films this was trying to be. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that plenty of people whose opinions I respect did really like and emotionally connect with the film. I do think it's flawed, but I'm happy that they got things out of it that I didn't. Original Fiction, Red 14. Red 14, Red 14, Red 14. Sir? Red 14, Red 14, Red 14. Sir, red I can 14, help you at the station. Red. Sorry, what? Sir, if you'll just step up here, I can process your boarding pass. Oh, of course, miss. One moment. Sorry. Red 14. That's all right, sir. Red it's 14. just a line, red 14. My bad. Give me a moment. This, this bag's heavy. Do you need any assistance in carrying it, red. sir? No. No. Sorry, no. I'm fine. Here. Um, what do you need from me? Well, I'll need your Empire-issued holographic red ID, 14. sir, and also a valid interstellar passenger license. Right, right. I have those things. Just give me a second. Sorry. I'm travelling to see my um, grandmother. She's got... what do you call it? Byronic plague, sir. Right. That's the one. Well, in red that case, you'll 14. also need quarantine paperwork, sir. Imperial directive. Byronic plague. She's in the final stages, so I'm a bit... Um, quarantine paperwork, red 14, sir, representing red your willingness 14. to be placed in quarantine upon your return, pending the result of a diagnostic scan for infection. Oh, well, I don't have that, but I can fill one out. Do you have a copy? Mm, certainly, sir. Old-fashioned paper forms only, I'm afraid. You'll need to initial on the first page here, and then sign on the second page here and here. Red, 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 13? No, 14. Red, 14. Sir? Ah, I'm afraid I don't have a pen. Red, 14. It's attached to the desk. Red, there, 14. Sir. 
Ah, right you are. Initialing here. Red 14. Signing there. Red 14, red 14. I hope your grandmother isn't in too much pain, sir. Red 14. Hmm? Oh, yes, thank you. I'm sure she's fine. I mean... Red 14, red 14. Byronic plague is one of the worst epidemics the Empire's yet seen. My my mother died from it, sir. That's so. Red 14. All signed. Right. Sorry, sorry, sir. Anything to declare? Red 14. Nope. Nothing worth declaring. The contents of that case, sir? Personal items for my grandmother to have on her deathbed. Sentimental. Can you open the case, sir? Uh, no. Pardon? Sorry. Some of these things are fragile, packed in very precisely. Red 14, red 14. I don't want to expose them to artificial air, you know. I I see, sir. In that case, we'll simply need to apply a magnet lock to the case, sir, just just so it can't be opened during interstellar flight. The lock can be removed by security on the other side. That's fine. Is it fine? Guard, would you... Red 14. Sir, if you wouldn't mind... Sure, yeah. Is it okay if I leave it on the ground here while he does that? It's very heavy. That's fine, sir. Just just step away. All right. Red 14, red 14, red 14. And there it is. All locked up tight. Red 14. Thank you, guard. Yes, thank you. Is that everything I need? Yes, sir. Please enjoy your flight, sir. Hail to the Emperor, death to his enemies. Yes, right. All of that. Red 14. I'll be boarding now. Very good, sir. Boarding the shuttle. Arm hurts. Case is heavy. Seems much heavier than before. How much does that magnet lock weigh, and can it come off? This is an old shuttle, antique, laid out just like a 21st century atmospheric aircraft. Long centre aisle, overhead luggage compartments, seats on either side. About half of the seats are already full, mostly human, occasional branded and masked Venusian. No Martians. Of course no Martians. The old woman behind jabs with long bony fingers. Come on! She snarls. These old joints need to sit down. Moving down the aisle, unfamiliar eyes staring, arm hurts, case is heavy. Red 14. Made it to designated seat. It's an aisle seat. Has to be an aisle seat, just in case. Stewardess smiles. Can I help you lift your case into the overhead compartment, sir? No. I mean, no thank you. Nervous smile, bending down hefting the case in both arms, setting it in overhead compartment as gently as possible. On the top of the case, a small display flashes. It displays a number, a red number, 15. Red 14, it has to be now. Now, damn it. Will that damn lock come off? Lifting trembling fingers to the case, reaching for the special seal that'll open it. Old woman pokes again. Come on, young man. Help me lift my bag into that compartment. These old bones can't... Just a moment, please. Where's that release? That red number ticks down. Fourteen. Red Red fourteen. Damn it, and there it is. The release. Pressing it. Doesn't open. That damn magnet lock. Stewardess is there. Are you sure you don't need help, sir? I'm fine. Just making sure it's secure in there. 
reach around to the other side for the emergency release. Hopefully, that'll disable the magnet lock. It worked when testing the case before this. Old woman pokes again. Emperor's beard! Young man, you are intolerably rude! I demand you help me at once! One second. Where is that emergency? There it is. A faint hiss. The glow of the magnet lock dims. It's disabled for now. Lifting the lid of the case, peering inside, the number on the display ticks down. Red 13. Am I too late? Peering into the case, searching. Damn it, am I too late? There, a face lifts up from over the ankles. A small Martian face with a tiny mouth to go along with limited air consumption. The eyes are glazed from CO2 poisoning, but there's life there. Papa, wheezes a weak voice. Excuse me to the stewardess, to the old woman, leaning in, whispering, It's okay, it's okay, Mira, go back to sleep. Feeling a wave of warm CO2 passing out of the case and flowing into the passenger compartment. Looking at the display, red 15, red 20, red 25 and rising, orange 30, yellow 50, green 70, green 100. The display darkens as the case rebalances its interior tank, sucking oxygen out of the atmosphere, whispering, I love you, closing the case, a faint whine as the magnet lock seals again. Turn, and the stewardess is right there. Excuse me, sir. Heart beating, sweating from right temple. Yes? She knows. She saw. Stewardess stares long and hard. Her eyes say she knows. Her eyes say she saw or heard the outgassing. She smiles. It's a small secret smile. A smile just for me. Sir, would you mind helping that woman with her case, please? Yes. Yes, I'm sorry. Turning, helping the old woman lift her case into the compartment, she grunts and shuffles into her seat without offering thanks. Sitting in my seat, breathing out a sigh of relief. Not safe yet, but safe for now. Red 14. Original Fiction Lazaraki Canticles The dead were hungry. Weren't they always? Milra's shoulders burned. Twin pails of ungodly slop hung from her aching fingers, already beginning to reek. Her feet made great echoing clacks upon the filthy marble floor of the quad, too loud in leaden air. The spires of Oropol's Necropolitechnic towered over her, their shadows a twisted web in the light of dim twin suns. Their aspect was more gothic than it was organic. Bone mixed with mortar and great bricks of crematorium ash combined to make a campus of stately authoritarian buildings that dwarfed its students and scholars. It was dinner time now, for living and dead alike. The faculty would take their meals in their towers and caves and drafty freezing classrooms. The students would crowd into the halls of their colleges to eat, or go into the city to buy street sauce and watch the iron minstrels, or sneak into the crypts to plot, liaise, and seduce each other. But not Milra. 
damn the Chancellor and damn his holistic pickling. Any practitioner worth their bone meal should have recoiled at the idea of maintaining the soul in a corpse built for manual labour. What use would that torment be other than a downtick in efficiency? But the Chancellor did not listen, as Milra's mother would have. Instead, she'd been thrown into scullion duties under pain of expulsion. Some small, bitter part of her wanted nothing more than to spit in the eye of authority and strike out on her own, to buy a petty license and raise a few dead to assist her in her duties. There was a life to be made down in the city. Folks would pay dearly for dead labourers that never tired, or dead watchmen who never slept. Those few petty necromancers Milra knew were contents, for the most part. And yet, here she was, pouring slop into the feeding holes around the pit and cursing her ambition. The holes themselves were cast in ancient bronze, sloughed over with verdigris and pockmarked with symbols only half remembered. They gaped ominously, producing a faint sucking sound as the nutrient slurry was poured into them one by one until all six had been filled. Then... Hands shaking with exertion, Milra pulled the lever by the side of the great pit itself. With a gurgling roar, the pipes opened and a huge basalt trough was filled. The builders had taken great pains to avoid the trough looking like a coffin, a decision Milra found grimly amusing. The dead had already begun to creep from their cradles in the pit walls limbs shaking as they adjusted to their new state. Some of them were withered where old age had claimed them, others bore great knotted scars where accident or violence had taken their souls. All were united in appearance by their grey, unfeeling skin and clouded white eyes. This batch of the newly risen would gorge themselves upon the slurry, growing strong and inhumanly muscled. Then they would sleep one final time and awaken as proper labourers. A scuttling movement caught Milra's eye. On the edge of the trough two figures were snarling and pushing one another, lips drawn back over chipped teeth. Of course, there were always cases like this. The flesh-takers asked few questions of their clients and, upon occasion, brought bodies slain by rogue sorcery or badland weapons that curdled their very souls. Raising these bodies was wasteful at best, downright dangerous at worst, and two in a single crop. Milra hurried back to the edge of the quad and rang the watch-bell. A tense minute later, two prefects came trotting down the corridor. The taller one, Smior, looked down his nose at her as soon as their eyes met. His green eyes were like emeralds, shining, beautiful, and soulless. Yes, Smira, ringing the bell won't get you out of the dead of fighting. Two of them in one crop, she snapped back at him. Smior's mouth twisted at the interruption, but he was cut off again as Ptolemy laid a slender hand on his arm. She was everything Milra liked in a prefect, quiet flexible, always willing to listen. Perhaps too willing. We'll get the bill hooks, Milra. Not to worry. Have they fed yet? 
Milra explained that the trough had just been filled, ignoring Smior's impatient foot-tapping. Ptolemy waved him off and muttered something vile in Lazaraki as he stalked away to get the billhooks. Ptolemy's definition of we was refreshingly versatile. Milra tried to stifle a laugh as they walked back to the edge of the pit, but what she saw there put page to her effort. The dead were not feeding. Instead, every one of them had halted and turned, crouched to watch with unblinking eyes the fight between the flawed ones. They raked at each other with broken fingernails, scoring great bloodless lines in each other's skin until they were as ragged as two warring songbirds wreathed in grey. The one with dark hair was winning, barely, against its hairless opponent. Strange, isn't it? You'd think people would calm down once they've been shorn of soul. Ptolemy's cadence was an alien one. Her plane had been found by the clavigators a mere thirty years previously, and assimilation was not yet complete. Sometimes Milra wanted to ask her what life was like before first contact, before the clavigator diplomats, the floods of gold and spices, the crushing heel of the Argent legions. Before vassaldom and homage to Oropol, the city which, like the dark-haired dead below, thought nothing of ripping lesser planes to shreds and absorbing them wholesale into its black streets and staggering populace. I don't think people ever want to stop hurting each other, Milra whispered. Ptolemy laid a hand on her shoulder, and with a flush... Milra found herself far too focused on the warmth of it. As Smeor trudged over with a couple of billhooks and some warding scrolls, Ptolemy leaned in so that her breath, warm and smelling of jasmine tea, flew across Milra's ear and cheek distractingly. Some of us are going into the caves tonight to unwind. All this strudge work is making you gloomy. Meet me by the east gate. Then come down and have a drink with us. Milra nodded and flicked a glance at Smeor, who was angrily shuffling down the rope he'd laid, juggling his billhook and trying to avoid falling in. Ptolemy winked at her and quickly went to help Smeor before he could fall. The cave was warm with the throng of bodies, but Milra had never felt so alone. The great vaulted ceiling rose high above into the dark. Electric lamps and arcane batteries served to provide a dim orange light that lent the scene a surreal aspect. One enterprising senior had stolen an arcanograph from a common room and rewoven the bindings so that now it echoed and thrummed with music, a raw drum track underscoring unearthly tones that hissed and roared the melody like a living thing. She danced, mechanically, weaving between amorous clumps of students and the occasional solitary dancer towards Ptolemy, who lounged against a stalagmite with enviable calm. She'd put something iridescent under her eyes, and Milra found her dancing slow, even more, as they drew close. Under the din, Ptolemy managed to mouth, Follow me. Milra took the offered hand without thinking, gripping with an eagerness that made Ptolemy shoot her a sly, knowing glance. They walked through the height of the music, 
so thunderous that their ears crackled and rang. The dancers around them seemed to flicker in and out of clouds of buck smoke and the din, until at last they slipped down a side tunnel and found themselves divorced abruptly from the noise. The fury of the celebration above faded steadily even as the cold increased. They were moving deeper into the veins of the earth now, each step removing them further from heat and light and humanity. Ptolemy led Milra down through the lightless halls and great soaring clefts, never touched by human tools, until at last they came into a great round chamber mined by dead labourers. A score of them stood here now, stock still and ready for command. But Milra quickly realised they were not labourers at all, but something stranger still. All were armed with swords, spears and bucklers covered in the most potent magical wards she'd ever seen. Three of them were even rigged up with great lightning generators that would blast stone and flesh apart with equal measure. She turned on Ptolemy, who regarded her with a level smile. What the hell is this? Do you know what would happen if blood will be shed, Mira, one way or another? Ptolemy interrupted. Her eyes were luminous in the dim light, soaking up Milra's scorn with scant regard. We deserve our time at the top. No more drudge work. No more rules. Tonight, we can overturn it all and make something new for ourselves. Ptolemy's hands were firm on her shoulders, as Milra thought. She remembered the snide mockery of the Chancellor, the constant scrabble with the other students for funding, the never-ending grind to make more labourers get more funding, find a, a good share of bodies before the prefects claimed them. She remembered the warmth of Ptolemy's breath in her ear. She took a deep breath of cold, stale air. What are we going to do? She asked. Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds Issue 4. This issue featured articles written by Alan Stroud, Ant Jones, Ben Potts, Christopher Jarvis, Connor Eddles, Jane Cluett, Lewis Calvert, Richard Watson, Thomas Turnbull Ross and Tom Grundy and was edited by Alan Stroud, Jane Cluett and Tom Grundy. This audio edition featured the voices of Jamie Sugar, Kareem Cromfley, Peter Wotherspoon, Sarah Golding and Tom Grundy and was edited by Ashley Devine, Christopher Jarvis and Peter Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website at www.parallelworlds.uk. 